Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Upon entering graduate school, I had a very difficult time making sense of all the terms related to theory and scholarship. I found myself struggling to understand everything that was being said, and I also felt insufficiently guided in my own thinking as a person who was interested in potentially being a professor and scholar. So theory, for a long time, has scared me, but also has remained intriguing to me. On this episode, I face those fears and dive deeply into the book Metamodernism, The Future of Theory with Dr. Jason Josephson Storm. The book works through postmodern critiques and offers a new way through postmodern skepticism to envision an inclusive future of theory that crosses disciplines across all human sciences. This is an action-packed and detailed journey through the history of theory and into a vision for the future that I hope will be enjoyable to all listeners. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jason Josephson Storm on Metamodernism. Dr. Jason Josephson Storm, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's good to chat with you again. I'm so glad that you're here, Jason. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and sort of give yourself like a a potted bio in case there's listeners out there who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm... uh... I think of myself as a historian and philosopher of the human sciences, and I work half on Japan and half on Western Europe, especially France and Germany, and in both cases in the period roughly from 1600 to the present. Um, In general, what I try and do is combine like history and philosophy or history and theory to challenge Um, epistemological obstacles, like things that are preconceptions, which serve as the foundations of different academic disciplines or or conversations. And what I'm really interested in is sort of really fundamental issues in the humanities and social sciences. Uh, I've written, I have three published books so far. The first is The Invention of Religion in Japan. The second, uh, The Myth of Disenchantment, which we talked about uh, last time. Uh, And then a new book, uh, Metamodernism, The Future of Theory. So I see myself also as kind of between two worlds, doing both empirical research, archive research, a lot of translation, and then doing this more theoretical reflections like what we're gonna be talking about today. I don't know. There's a lot more bio I could say, but that's probably enough to get us started. Yeah, I love it. Well, I do want to chat about this new project, but I do want to touch base on the fact that you were here for the myth of disenchantment. Uh, We did that episode together in July of 2019. So people can find that if they scroll way back in the show archives. Um, But when we were chatting in 2019, you were alluding to this new project that you were working on. Like I remember us chatting briefly about that. 
And you mentioned to me that it was about theory, and now the book is alive and in the world. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about the process of bringing metamodernism, the future of theory, out now with the University of Chicago Press to completion, like in the wake of the previous book, Myth and Disenchantment. Tell me a little bit about where you went after we chatted in 2019. Yeah. So, I mean, to take a step back, um, both books... Um, both of the last two books kind of emerged in the same uh, mental space in the same time frame. Uh, even actually, like I was, I've been thinking about both of them since uh, I finished writing the first book, but before it had even come out. Um, and in, in a certain respect, the myth of disenchantment and metamodernism parted ways at a key historical moment. And to explain why, um, one of the ways I conceived the myth of disenchantment was as a challenge to certain notions of modernity, and particularly notions of modernity as rupture. So, mm. you know, that word moder modern or modernity kind of functions as a device for positing historical breaks. So to say something is modern means that, I don't know, it's different than it was in the past and that in, in some new way, a kind of ruptural way, a kind of way of marking novelty. Now, it's weird, just as a tangent, that the term modern has been in place since the Middle Ages. And so mm. we have people been using it to describe their moment now for for in the in the European context for hundreds of years but um, the idea is that people have often thought modernity was an event for which we could demarcate a date like you know modernity happened in 1492 or in 1648 or 1789 or 1860 whatever but um I want to argue it also had a geographic component to it people often describe certain nations or cultures as modern and others not modern as not modern so it was and it was as much a project as a periodization we must become modern so in that book I attempted to attack the myth of modernity and in particular one version of that myth and particularly influenced one that associated modernity with disenchantment uh, and the stripping away of magical belief. And in um, not to recap that book, but in sort of undoing a particular account of modernity as rupture, I also um, swept the foot out of postmodernity as historical rupture. So I was also arguing against that we had ever been modern in a certain way, to borrow Latour's phrase, and I arguing also that we'd never really been postmodern either. Mm. But um, so in part of what I'm trying to do in the new book was not so much step uh, out from postmodern as postmodernism, whose connection to that periodization is loose, uh, and <laughs> uh, we can talk about a, a little bit later. But um, the connection between the two of them was a kind of overcoming of both notions of modern, moder modernity, postmodernity, and now postmodernism. Yeah. Mm. I love the way that these two books seem to almost like speak to each other in that regard. It's almost like they're companion pieces very purposefully in your in your description there. Yeah, totally. In, in a way, they were originally thinking of them as the past and future of the human sciences, mm. because even in the myth book, I'm about I'm interested in the birth of sociology, um, religious studies, uh, folklore, psycho psychoanalysis, uh, philosophy, and a few other disciplines. And here, you know, and they, they evolved in and around a notion of a modern rupture. I, I wanted to argue in that book, they, you know, sociology was founded around the problem of modernity, which it presumed even as it was established as an academic discipline. And then that project changed into a kind of question of postmodernism uh, in many sectors, not all of sociology, for instance, but in many sociologists. And so then it became a second set of problems that I thought about solving. And so in a certain way, that book was about the past and now what I hope to be the future of the human sciences. So now, instead of describing the way things were, I'm trying to make a programmatic call for the way things could be or should be, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And you're like a very interdisciplinary person. Whenever I read your bio, like you're in multiple academic departments with multiple academic focuses, and you write for people across the human sciences, like you don't stay pigeonholed into one field, like you're, you're out there and you're doing this work to try to speak to so many people, which is so fascinating about what it is that you do compared to a lot of other people, you know? 
Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I really work hard to kind of escape disciplinary silos. And I think um, it's it's a struggle and constant effort, but I try and keep current in a, in a lot of, of fields. Yeah, definitely. I, I love it. Well, I want to talk about like the term itself. Okay, so the title of the book, Metamodernism. So as a former graduate student myself, I was always, you know, you know, beaten upside the head with things like postmodernism. So like the the terms are super important here. And before we dive into the book, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how you define this term metamodernism to yourself, because I realize it may have changed over time. And the book has also been out for a little bit now. So I'm wondering like where you are with this term now today in December of 2022. Yeah, great. Um, so when I started writing the book, and for most of its history, it didn't have the term metamodernism in it. When I was writing it from conception in 2011 to when it finally came out about a decade later, because um, it was sort of in the background there while I was writing my second book, um, I called the project Absolute Disruption, which is a quote from the two quotes from Tanabe Hajime and from Hegel that both use the word phrase absolute disruption, depending on how you translate the German and the Japanese. But I was beginning it with those. And um, but when I sent it out for peer review, uh, based on original sample chapters, people kept wanting to give it an ism. Mm. Like the, the peer reviewer said, okay, this is an ism. And one of them was like, you know, it is, oh, it's a, it's a great example of post postmodernism and post postmodernism <laughs> made me want to throw up. And the other reviewer was like, you know, oh, what ism is it? At? What school is he in? You know, and was sort of like, you know, how does he try and do this without, um, an, an ism basically. And so, um, I, I so in the in just the final round of revising the manuscript, I uh, my uh, editor also encouraged me to think of an ism, and so um, I remembered the work of a Nigerian art historian named uh, Moyo Okadiji, um, whose work who contributed to a volume on uh, African and Jewish diasporic artists, which is how I came across his work, and he was referring to. Um, uh, certain artists as metamodern because they were both rejecting and playing with modernism and postmodernism alike. And, and it was a kind of decolonial term in his vocabulary. And for me, I just love that term uh, in, in his usage as, as a name for a project, as an aspirational project, not a periodization. I'm not trying to describe a metamodernism that was already out there, uh, at least not when I originally turned to the term, um, but to signal for me in particular uh, that play, that play with both categories of modernism and postmodernism. Um, and for me, I, what I liked about it for me, the emphasis was on the meta prefix uh, to primarily suggest a kind of higher or second order position beyond both postmodernism and modernism alike. Uh, I, I was I almost called it metaism, but then that sounded too weird. And I'm glad I didn't because of Zuckerberg and the mm. meta first. But uh, the modern is not the main point of emphasis. It's on the meta. Some other folks have used the term metamodernism after Moyo Okadiji coined it, and I'm only very tangentially in dialogue with them. I mean, some of them are very cool people, but I'm not trying to do what they're mostly trying to do, which is the vast majority of them are trying to define certain things in our historical moment as either metamodern or not. And that's just not the project I'm interested in. I'm not trying to describe a paradigm shift. I'm trying to trigger one. And so okay. uh, metamodernism is the thing I'm trying to call into being. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, so one of the things I love about the book, so like just a little bit about me and where yeah. I came at the book, this was brand new stuff for me. This is stuff that is brand new to me, but I was a graduate student in a PhD program 10 years ago and going into a graduate school PhD program in 2011 uh, in ed this college of education, you get, you know, kind of beat upside the head with different philosophical schools and theoretical frameworks and all these new terms that just kind of get put on you. And I had really no clue 
about what any of this meant. And I felt completely out of place for so long. And I didn't really feel as if I had any very much guidance in that. So I found myself in a theory class, presenting at conferences, putting random stuff about theoretical frameworks on conference presentation slides and blasting through it, hopefully hoping that no one would like question my obvious lack of understanding about what I was doing there. And like, I felt like I was handed theoretical frameworks without really understanding what it was or why it mattered or how to use them. And I was like paralyzed and terrified by the entire prospect. So, you know, I'm wondering if you can describe in your view uh, the way that new scholars are brought into the world of theory and higher education and like offer your insights on that because I felt so lost. And you also acknowledge that in your book, the way that people inherit school, like philosophical frameworks, you know? Yeah, totally. So to, to sort of take a step back and run up to it, um, I want to note that the word theory is is pretty loaded and it's and that there's a tendency to confuse uh, a bunch of different versions of what that word could possibly mean. We might mm -hmm. think of um, let me let me try and enumerate a list. They might think of one like a lowercase theory, which you know people use to refer to an explanatory generalization, maybe or system of observations, like the theory of gravity. Or you mm -hmm. might think of a, a, a what well, that's not so much what we're talking about, but maybe uh, there might be a second use of theory, capital T theory, which uh, people use to refer to a particular canon of texts and body of interpretive methods that you know people drop names Spivak or Derrida or whatever in that capital T theory. Mm -hmm. And then there's a third but more basic sense of theory, which is a kind of second order reflection. So, for instance, um, anthropological theory or education theory is a second order reflection on, let's say, you know, what is it that educators do? What epistemological or ethical issues might you encounter in the course of doing your work uh, and so on? And so what, what I was really interested in, and, and I'll segue this back to why I think it's screwed up at the present moment. But what I'm really interested in is how a capital T theory, a certain canon, bequeathed to us various lowercase t theories and second order concepts and how we might make both better. And here's why this matters. Matters. And I want to make this really clear because that word theory can seem very imposing. Yeah. Um, I want to say that all scholars and educators, whether you know it or not, you're deploying second order theories. Every time you evaluate scholarship, every time or, or student contributions or you know even grade uh, reports, uh, every time you generalize behind a case study, every time you translate from one language to another or discuss the implications of your research findings. Um, and this is because whether you're aware of it or not, I think most scholars need something we could call, you know, epistemology, a kind of ethics, or at least a sense of the ethical um, issues relevant to your field, a notion of meaning, uh, a social ontology, and perhaps a set of research methods. Mm -hmm. And what so what what happened, uh, you know, to just to give you a, an example, like if you were doing a case study, say, on Islam in modern Senegal, you might think, you know, how confident should I be uh, in my case study? You know, um, even if you're a Senegalese Muslim yourself, you might want to know how representative has your experience been or how do you evaluate evidence of the testimony of your various interlocutors? And then, you know, are there better and worse way to advance theories or generalizations about that evidence? Or similarly, there are ethical issues everywhere. Again, you know, like if you're interviewing um, Senegalese Muslims, but you're not one yourself. How do you represent your interlocutors? And then finally, there well, there are also issues of meaning. Like, how, what are you translating? Like, when you translate Barack, you know, how are you going to translate that into English? Can you translate that into English or whatever? Um, or and and then there's an even more fundamental level, which is what are we talking about when we say the noun Islam? What is the thing we're pointing to in the world? Or even if we just use the the 
a modified form, Senegalese Islam. Is that one thing? Is that many things? What kind of properties does it have? So all those instances, I think we're using theory or we could benefit from theory in second order reflection. It's there in our grading. It's there when we're writing peer reviews. It's often an unspoken background. And, and in, you know, because we're presuming things about how the, those, those things fit together and how they work. And this unspoken background is basically what Kuhn called a paradigm. And I want to argue, and a paradigm is a sort of background series of models for what scholarship looks like in a certain area or discipline. And part of the reason that I think many people um, you know, even people who don't think that they have theory and they don't like theory, a lot of people in history departments that I talk to, for instance, are like, oh, I don't have any theory. I just have archives or something. <laughs> you're inheriting theory. You're inheriting epistemological stances and ideas of archives and all these things. You're just not interrogating them. And then in another sense, though, a lot of us inherit a theory that was a canonized capital T theory associated with postmodernism. And that theory I found already from graduate school, and it sounds like you did too, profoundly unsatisfying. Mm, a lot yes. of that theory just wasn't helping us do the kind of work we need to do. Yeah. Do you think that professors like don't really understand that they're kind of like almost like inheriting a theoretical framework or being shoehorned into something based on like who they happen to land with as an advisor going into grad programs or things like that? Do you think this is a problem that should be talked about a lot more? I think definitely that there is a significant problem that there there's a big there, there are two there are two kinds of problems. One, there's a rejection of theory, like a lot of this stuff. So to take a step back, uh, a lot of the specifically postmodern theory. I'm going to take even further step back. I'm going to do a historical <laughs> run-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so to give a historical run-up, a, a lot of this second-order reflection for much of the humanities and social sciences was originally provided by the discipline of philosophy. Philosophy was where people addressed issues of the question of knowledge. And I'm talking about right now in the Euro-American Academy, we can talk about other parts of the world separately. But in the Euro-American Academy, a lot of this was the philosophy was a discipline that had us question, you know, what is knowledge? How do we know what we know? Or had us talk about certain kinds of ethical issues or try to figure out, you know, what is out there, you know, what exists, you know, things like that. But starting basically in the post-war period um, with the dominance of something called logical positivism, philosophy got really into itself as a scientific discipline. And it started writing stuff that was um, more or less unintelligible to, to the rest of the academy. Now, that's not necessarily bad. Some of that stuff is great, but a lot of it, you know, fights about um, dismissals of metaphysics and arguments about whether the cat on the mat is a logically true sentence in all possible <laughs> worlds. That's just not super relevant to folks in the, most of the humanities and social sciences. And philosophy got super jargony and very hard to read. And so what happened in the Anglophone world is that, and this is especially a problem of American and Austrian or, uh, you know, the so-called logical positivist analytic philosophy. So uh, what happened in a lot of the American Academy uh, and in the British uh, Academy is that people started to import theory from France and Germany, philosophers, but not just philosophers from France and Germany to get their second order reflection. Um, but part of the problem is, so th this is what became eventually canonized as the theory of post postmodern theory, we could say, um, although it often was called different things. Um, and that uh, that kind of went really far and and some of that was really good. A lot of it was really good. But what started happening was people were imitating the style of it. And what it encouraged people to think theory was, was a particular canon of particular dead French dudes that or, or German dudes that are probably easy to feel alienated from. And who are also um, writing in a particular philosophical idiom and according to a certain set of jargon that can be really hard to parse without a lot of background that most people weren't being trained in. And uh, it had a lot of presupp presuppositions built into it about language, knowledge, and so even, and, and so this paradigm kind of took hold and some people rebelled against it and they said, I don't want any theory. That was probably worse. Um, that happened most strongly in quantitative disciplines where people were like, oh, I just have numbers. But a lot of that stuff is, that makes them way weaker, those quantitative disciplines, because they, mm. they haven't taken the critique seriously. They're easy to knock down, although they don't necessarily realize that. But I want to own one of the main problems with a lot of this theory, which is to use uh, a term, I don't know if you, you might have to bleep it, but uh, a lot of this theory 
is basically bullshit. And and yeah. I want to say, uh, and I put this sort of explicitly in the book, but I'm using the term bullshit from the philosopher Harry Frankfurt. And Frankfurt argued that, quote unquote, uh, I, I can't quite quote him, but I'll paraphrase him, that the essence of bullshit is basically bullshitters don't care about whether what they're saying is true or not. And and I think a certain percentage of postmodernists, not all of them, but many of them, and definitely many of their later inheritors in the Anglophone Academy are impossible to disagree with because obfuscation and jargon make it really hard to figure out what they're all already saying. And this especially not so many, so much true of the early canonical figures. Like if you, if you spend your time and effort on Foucault, I think he, he makes sense or whatever, but a lot of second order interpreters, they're basically saying stuff that sounds cool. And they're saying, cause it advances their careers. And and maybe they think, you know, it doesn't really matter so much if it's true or not true. And it becomes this thing of inventing made up new terms and trying to trying to tag them. You know, you come up with a phrase, I don't know, uh, um, anthropogenic transcendentalism. And then you just like <laughs> start throwing it around and then you try and, you know, say something that sounds really profound, but it's either banal or, it, or it's impossible or something. And people don't really care. And so that makes it even more that be, that's because theory itself has become its own hyper-specialized territory, the same kind of territorialism and disciplinary silos that hit other disciplines hit theory in a certain way, and it makes it less relevant to those in many disciplines. So people felt that they like had that in theory, but a lot of it was bullshit, and then they kind of forgot it and, and or, or rebelled against it. And in so doing, they um, didn't address many of the fundamental issues about knowledge and ethics, et cetera, that I think we all need to deal with. So what mm. I'm trying to do in metamodernism is a kind of no bullshit theory that rejects unnecessary jargon uh, in favor of argumentative clarity, because I want you to be able to figure out what I'm saying and if I'm wrong or not. Like it makes a huge difference. I want you to, I want to know, I want you to know when I'm wrong and I want to be told when I'm wrong, even though I might argue back. Um, and so part of that, I think, should make it more relevant to those of us in the humanities and social sciences. It should be able to return to a kind of potential for uh, these theoretical reflections, which we don't need all the time. It doesn't need to be the only kind of scholarship out there. In fact, I think of it as a supplement or, or a way of adding a conscience or uh, a set of concerns or techniques or methods to existing kinds of scholarship and causing people to do them in new ways. So mm. that's that's part of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Jason, why do you love this this stuff so much? Like, how did you get into this? Like, what is your journey through theory? Because I know that you've studied around the world a little bit and you focus on research all over the world, Japan a bunch, Germany, like England, you know, France and California. Like, tell me about your journey through this because the, yeah. the you've clearly read so extensively in this. And I'm wondering why you got so into this. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, great. Um, so. <laughs> my parents, my parents are both philosophers. Yeah. So I grew up with that. Like I, I don't remember a period in my life when I didn't know who Immanuel Kant was. Amazing. Which is also screwed up. And I also grew up with a background, a family background in Buddhism. So in that respect, I was already engaging with the two things that are most important to me. Uh, let's say philosophy and what could be called East Asian religion or East Asian philosophy, depending on who I'm talking to. Um, and then I was like a, like a bit of a, you know. A nerd as we all were. Um, and uh, in, in middle school, I got really into Nietzsche. I, I went to a, a, a francophone school, which made being interested in uh, uh, those kind of into European philosophy more more exciting. And I wrote my first long form paper at thirteen on Nietzsche and anti semitism. Uh, and then in college, I started uh, wanting to be a philosophy major. But then, and I loved. Um, Greek philosophy, I loved introduction to philosophy, but then pretty quickly, what really, my real passion was East Asian philosophy, which I mm -hmm. also started taking in college. And as it turned out, um, 
due to the Eurocentrism of many philosophy departments, they rejected East Asian philosophy as philosophy. Uh, and, and so that pushed me toward a religion department. And in the process of doing that, I also got more, even more interested in continental philosophy. The other things that analytic departments were rejecting. So people like Foucault and Derrida, et cetera. And so I was a total um, philosophy wannabe, you know, like uh, theory wannabe uh, or uh, what have you. And I ended up going, um, you know, to graduate school, you know, initially at Harvard. And then I spent some time at Oxford and then, uh, or, you know, a year at Oxford. And then I did my PhD at Stanford. And while I was at Stanford, you know, um, I, I then got to spend time in Paris and Tokyo. And all that time, I was like going to see the lectures of the famous you know, philosophers of my day, uh, you know, people like Derrida or Agamben or Zizek or Cornell West. I mean, whoever, like I was out there uh, trying to sort of soak up all that kind of, uh, all that kind of theory, because I thought that second order reflection was super important. In fact, in a way, that was my deep passion. But unlike some theory kids for whom they're just into theory, but they're not interested in applying it. I also wanted to get training, and, and it was good to graduate school to do this in the rigorous, rigorous techniques of historical and philological scholarship. So I could do, mm. you know, detailed translations from the Japanese and archival work and ethnographic work, and then think about the second order issues, philosophical, theoretical issues they bring up. So it's been a passion for a really long time. Yeah, most I of my life. It. Well, that, you know, and, and music, you know, rock, punk rock, you know. Heck but, yeah, you know. man. Yeah, that, that's mine too. Um, you write in great depth about something that I hadn't really thought about a whole lot. It was like the different eras of the way that theory has developed and you call them like these like philosophical turns and they're like moments. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of give an, a general overview of some of the turns because your grasp of the history of these philosophical turns is something that a lot of listeners may have no idea about. And I think that it'd be worth sharing. Yeah, so that metaphor, this metaphor of like a turn in philosophy is a pretty old metaphor. Uh, well, not, well, let's say it, it takes hold significantly in the 1950s in and around something called the ling quote unquote linguistic turn. Um, ironically, um, the first people who are supposed to be examples of that linguistic turn are not the postmodernists. They're actually the um, logical positivists who got really interested in language in the 50s and 60s. That that phrase, the linguistic turn, uh, becomes really big in the 50s and 60s. But then as a metaphor, that opens up this notion of turn, which starts like proliferating. And, and let me just open up. I've got a list here so that I don't Okay. Um, like, so, uh, you know, starting in the 70s and 80s, we have things referred to as cultural and interpretive and historical turns. Then by the late 80s, people are talking about cognitive turn. By the 90s, people start talking about the postmodern turn. And then there's another historic turn that people start talking about after that, that apparently <laughs> having forgotten the earlier historical turn. Um, but, or maybe that's the old historical turn coming back. Um, and then the 90s and 2000s, this metaphor of turn just proliferates like crazy. So you have turn to religion, corporeal turn. And then even the last 10 years, it's gotten even crazier. There's a speculative turn. I'm reading the list now. Speculative turn, visual turn, participatory turn, affective turn, material turn, transnational turn, pragmatic turn, sensorial turn, historical turn, third time, mobility turn, uh, temporal turn, spatial turn, repetitive turn, no, reparative turn, animal, non-human turn. They seem to be against each other. There's a human turn, an ontological turn, a pedagogical turn, a practical turn, a quotidian turn, empirical turn. And finally, uh, according to one contemporary American scholar, Mark Seltzer, there's a turn turn, 
but all <laughs> to say that metaphor of turns just proliferates and, and it's crazy because it, it gives you the sense if you just read through this or, or um, of, a, of a maddening, dizzying running in circles. And I feel like that that running in circles, that metaphor of turns is very aptly appropriate because people often don't know where they're going. They know what they think that they're rebelling against and they have a sort of stock set of figures of antithetical figures. Uh, the postmodernists sometimes are the positivists. Those seem to be the two main bad guys that they're rejecting often without studying in much detail. Um, and uh, But they're often turning away rather than turning towards something. And they often are supposed to be describing trends, but they um, end up sounding like ways that we should go, but they often end up just being a list of fads. And mm. a lot of them get recycled. The same thing gets counted in the, you know, the historical turn keeps returning, or we're always reminding ourselves of bodies. Uh, we've been reminding ourselves that we have emotion uh, ever since uh, one could argue romanticism. I mean, so there's a lot of repetition and a lot of these seem to be rebrandings, uh, but that metaphor kind of goes crazy. And I explore this a little bit in the introduction to the book where, you know, where, where you can read that full list and get a lot of citations there. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me a little bit as well, too, because you you described something. So as, as I mentioned earlier, I had a really hard time grasping things related to postmodernism in graduate school. And then you go into these five problematics of postmodernism. And I'm wondering if you can just extrapolate that a little bit, too, because I found that part to be really fascinating because it spoke to me as a sort of failed academic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think you're too harsh on yourself to call yourself a failed academic, but uh, oh, thank you. Okay, let, let's let, yeah, you're doing great public facing. Uh, yeah. Work here. Um, so I, I think so for me, so to take a step back, the word postmodernism has been used to describe a bunch of different kinds of things from styles of architecture to styles of literature to kinds of fine art to music. Most of the, the way that the term uh, appeared in the 70s and 80s, um, uh, especially in the 80s, described you know cultural fads that are also no longer with us, ironically. So we're after most of the art forms of postmodernism, like postmodernism in architecture is basically dead. Uh, postmodernism in literature, people like Rob Grier, nobody reads anymore. I mean, it's not the dominant art style. But in the academy, the term postmodernism uh, has, I want to argue, tend to capture um, five different kinds of problematics. And I get this from a few different places, but um, the footnotes, again, are, are, are in the introduction to the book. But um, uh, uh, a, a kind of anti-realism, uh, an emphasis on endings, which includes a disciplinary autocritique. This is number two. So in religious studies, we got super critical of the category religion and we try to dissolve it. Similarly, in anthropology, people dissolve the category culture or in history departments, dissolve the category history. That's part of a similar move. Uh, that's number two. Number three, uh, an amplified version of the linguistic turn that started describing the world in terms of texts or discourse as if that's the whole world. Um, a kind of for a kind of broader climate of skepticism. What got cool was doubting basically, but also sort of skeptical dogmatisms, claims about knowledge and power, et cetera. And then uh, finally, uh, a, a complicated stance toward ethics that was often called ethical relativism, but I want to argue is more likely uh, was was more fraught than that, but it was often referred to as ethical relativism. Let's put it that way. And all of this often got bundled together under the term postmodernism. Mm. And, and my point about these is that again, we have the return of those fundamental areas of theory. This is a these are questions of epistemology, ethics, social ontology, and semantics. These are things that all scholars need. But the thing about the constellation that came to define postmodernism is that they're almost all being done in a skeptical or scornful key. They're telling us that the projects themselves are impossible, and that's an ironic stance, especially especially for our humanities and social scientific disciplines in an era when the humanities and social sciences are under threat. And so uh, this becomes, this is hard not to read as the auto cannibalism of a particular uh, uh, disciplinary formation. We're, we're dissolving ourselves in a particular way. And not to say that it's wrong. I think in many cases, it was 
good to, to bunch us up, to push us out of a kind of hubris, to, to make us question fundamental things about ethics and Eurocentrism. Um, and you know, a, a lot of these are real fundamental skeptical issues. So people who think that postmodernism is all just jargon and don't want to take the issue seriously are just making a, a similar kind of mistake. But I want to say that these, this sort of postmodern paradigm only takes us so far. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do is um, start out from it and then work out my, uh, so a, a response to these skeptical challenges. And, and to be totally clear, what I'm, uh, although I start out from these five postmodern problematics, what I argue metamodernism should stand on its own. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a systematic formation. It's an attempt for me to do, uh, to do epistemology, ethics, social ontology, and semantics, and talk about how they all relate to each other. Um, and because they do relate to each other, how you think language functions uh, affects uh, your sense of how you come to know the world or you know, the relationship between um, translation and ethics. I mean, there are all these things that are tied together. And so you know, I, I was uh, really flattered the other day when somebody compared the book, uh, uh, compared the book on Twitter to Hegel, and mm. you know, and 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 then also you know, I, I want to say you know, and was saying something like it's like Hegel, but like has heavily edited to be much shorter or something, and and I think part of that was the pressure of the publishers. So I think that the book might come across as too glib. I'm moving through two areas too quickly. I mean, I I could have written this. This could be five books, but it, but it sure. had to be one book. Um, but I I want to say taken together, this new orientation to these fundamental areas could point the way, or, or I'm trying to point the way toward a bright future for epistemic and ethical enterprises across the disciplines. It's a future that emerges from what's often called the darkness of postmodernism. It's one that doesn't repudiate postmodernism so much as lead us in and through the abyss to keep the mm. metaphor going. And it has stakes for scholars in the humanities and social sciences across the disciplines and for, for educators everywhere, I think. So it's a very ambitious project. It's something that most people aren't trying to do right now, which is systematic philosophy. And it's one, and I want to make this also clear, it's one that I'm not, I don't think of myself doing it solo. I, I reject the model of a Cartesian ego where it's like one great dude thinks on himself in a room. <laughs> and you know, Descartes was only be able to create that myth of himself as an autonomous ego because he didn't cite his sources. Mm. And he had a lot of influences that scholars have spent a lot of time unpacking. He was part of a social milieu and a conversation, et cetera. I'm part of a social milieu and a conversation, et cetera. And I'm learning a lot from a lot of people. And so I make those sources somewhat clear. And I think that that can be a little bit jarring for folks because I do read really widely, but I'm making, it's a, for me, an ethical strategy to both read outside of a particular uh, Euro-American conceptual horizon and also out of a di disciplinary silo, and then to make it clear that I'm getting little bits of inspiration from here or there. But I want to argue that my sense of what it means to do novelty, to do ingenuity, to, to create, is not to have zero influences, but to have many influences. It's like if your only influence is Sisters of Mercy, then your band is just going to sound like a Sisters of Mercy <laughs> knockoff band. Yeah. But if you're doing Sisters of Mercy plus, um, plus hip-hop, then, you know, uh, you know, then you know, plus Saul Williams or something, you're going to come up with something totally different. You know what I mean? Like, maybe yeah. not good, but but it'd be a totally different thing. So <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of open to, to the range of influences, but I want to say that the end result is something quite new, novel and quite fresh. Yeah. Mm. I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about a, a pragmatic approach. Like, say you had a graduate student that you were advising through a project and you were using this with them. I'm wondering if you can tell me about what that would look like for, you know, a, a new scholar, because the new scholars are a huge audience and target of this work. You say yeah. so in the book. So I'm wondering if you can like, you know, brainstorm a project using this. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, 
so I have a lot to say on a lot of different levels, and, and I know we only have so much time, so I'll just gesture at some of them. So in the first case, uh, it pr proposes or promotes a stance toward knowledge that's neither certainty nor skepticism, something I call zeteticism, which I argue is a way to achieve kind of humble knowledge. It's a skepticism of skepticism that can come out the other side. Mm. So it tells us first that we need to be able to hold, to be able to make arguments. We can know things, but we can't know what we know. There's a second order reflection that, that we can't actually do. So we're not looking for eternal knowledge outside temporality. But actually what Ooh. we're doing is we're finding uh, kinds of insights within the horizon of time. And some of those insights will stay. Some things that we discover, we might be right about. I mean, people might be saying hundreds of years from now, oh, you know, Greg was right about this thing that he said or whatever, but much of it will, most of it will probably fade. So it's, it's a kind of orientation toward knowledge within temporality. And if, if the project, if the student, graduate student was working on a project that had to do with translation, I have a lot to say about translation. Uh, I have also a lot to say about the kind of ethical issues and concerns we should be engaged with. But I think in certain respects, just for time reasons, the biggest innovation of the project is that I'm making a fundamental argument about how the quote unquote social world, what it is and how it is put together. The book provides what I call, uh, and try not, I'm trying to explain in a non-jargon way, a process social ontology, which is it's a description of how not just humans, but other kinds of social animals produce their social environments, construct them. It's a new theory of social construction and how social constructions makes things quote unquote real uh, in a processual sense, in a way that we're all, that they're always changing and evolving and transforming. And then in that space of this new process social kind theory, uh, or process social ontology, I also add a social kinds theory, which is a big contribution to the book because it tells us um, theories about how we should understand um, the things that we're studying. It flips uh, Foucauldian genealogy on its head. So a, a lot of, you know, the way that like a Foucauldian genealogy, to take a step back here, often works is it is that you, and I'm going to take us to a student in a minute, but I'm doing a little setup here. Um, yeah. uh, flip Foucauldian genealogy on its head because a genealogical project or a deconstructive project generally shows that what you previously thought was a unity, um, uh, organic unity has either changed historically or varies differently in different cultural environments or has built in contradictions or ethical issues that you didn't otherwise notice. But I want to argue if we grant all that, everything we're talking about is, is uh, the, perhaps a process an unfolding across a certain kind of temporality, heterogeneity is the norm, change is the norm, uh, stability is the exception. What it directs us to look at is not the moments of change, but the things that artificially produce similarity and stability. And often th that involves the, the unfolding of power in one way or another, but not necessarily it involves what I call anchoring processes. Um, and so part of what I'm, and, and the end, I, my proxy term for these things that we're referring to in the humanities and social sciences is social kinds. It's sort of an empty set term, but but I mean like, you know, whatever thing that we're talking about, uh, Senegalese Islam, for example. And one of the, uh, the points about studying these is that those objects, the social kinds exceed the discourse about them. So there's things about Senegal. So there's one whole school of folks in the postmodern camp who want to say, you know, the only thing that is in Senegalese Islam is what people say about Senegalese Islam or something like that. But I want to say that there are things about being a Muslim in Senegal that maybe uh, given Senegalese Muslim wouldn't necessarily know. It's definitely the case that you can new learn new things or just as, you know, talk about myself, you know, um, uh, you know, there are things about American Buddhism that I didn't know, even though I uh, identify as an American Buddhist um, uh, uh, or, you know, uh, you could, they're, they're, they exceed the reference. So sure. uh, to, to turn it back toward uh, a, a proposal for a graduate student, I think that the first thing that you should do as a graduate student, if you had a subject that you were talking about, again, I'll use Senegalese as an example. I seem to have stuck on it early in the conversation. No, fine. I don't know why, I guess what I was listening <laughs> to, uh, the music I was listening to a little bit earlier was, was, was some of that. But, um, but um, 
if, if the scholar is working on, the, on that, Senegalese Islam, I would say encourage them to first step into the deconstructive dojo I lay out in an early chapter, figure out how to, all the limitations in that category, it's heterogeneity, how it's changed over time, how systems of power are put in place about defining who counts as Senegalese, who counts as Muslim, uh, about the various rejections built into that, uh, about the ethical norms of studying it, all those, you know, the, the ethical challenges that come from the relationship between Senegal and, and religion in the state, perhaps. Um, and then having done the deconstructive move, which I think we've, some of us have gotten good at, you can then start to look at what are the things that nonetheless uh, remain stable across the horizon at which the student is trying to figure it out or the scholar is trying to figure it out. So you want to know if you're going to say that the Senegalese uh, uh, Islam uh, has a certain set of properties, is, is you describe it in a certain way, you want to know how can it be generalized beyond your case study? Is what you're saying about uh, Islam in contemporary Senegal, does that apply in the 19th century? Does that apply also in the 20th century? Does that apply in other parts of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera? And the social kinds theory I provide gives you a way to make those generalizations to figure out when they're going to hold and how they're going to hold. And so um, part of what I want to do is then work you through the deconstructive stuff and out the other side. And I think that uh, I also it also points students toward um, there's also this weird idea that what we're supposed to be doing is looking for gaps in the scholarly literature. And as I make it fairly clear in the book, a gap is fine, uh, but it's not sufficient. What we, what the, 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 we're better off looking, asking questions and uh, asking, you know, whatever kind of question you're interested in. I don't want to overdefine. Some people have small, you know, questions that are narrow in scope. You know, why did Acadian change the way that it did or whatever? I'm not trying to tell you that you have to only ask questions of contemporary political or ethical relevance, although you might. But I want to say then having a questions uh, explanatory driven approach um, then and then adding to it a kind of social ontology or uh, the philosophy of language stuff that I do can help you formulate projects in a new way and help you be clear about specifying your temporal horizons, uh, can help you be clear about uh, how generalizations work, can help you be clear about uh, ethical stakes, etc. So, mm. I mean, I, that's not very concrete. I got a little less concrete there, but for time reasons, um, I, I have a lot of advice, let's say. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, something that I've loved about this book and your work, like I said earlier, is your interdisciplinary approach that you take. And I love the term in the book, the uh, the territorial pissings of which was a, it, for a music fan out there, a fun Nirvana, never mind track seven reference uh, in my view. But um, I'm wondering how you see the feedback coming in from outside religious studies, your home field, like uh, if you've heard from people outside your field who have begun, you know, using your book and talking about it, I'm wondering what you're hearing from outside your immediate vicinity. Yeah, I've been really overwhelmed, overjoyed at the positive response to this book from, from outside my, my home base. Um, you know, on the state strength of it, I got invited, for instance, to the Australian National Leadership Conference this last year. Amazing. Which is the biggest, you know, event for 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 um, folks in nonprofit and policy world in Australia. I gave a short speech on it. Uh, I've been contacted by graduate students in a range of disciplines, not so much in religious study, less in religious studies than in disciplines like sociology, anthropology, uh, comp lit, uh, and, but it's and political science. Um, I've had some positive feedback from critical theory folks or some of my home people, though, in a, in a different uh, sense. I had a kind note from a computational linguist uh, about some of the language stuff. Um, and But I've also been caught by people who are outside of the academy who resonate with the ethical project at the end, uh, a labor organizer in Chicago, uh, a uh, concurrent social um, social movement person in, in New Haven, um, a, a, a 
um, Mexican climate activists, for instance. And there, right now there's a translation being done into Mandarin. Um, I've been getting a big pickup in Latin America, in part because a Spanish philosopher described it as the one of the best books of, I think, the decade. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of, of interest, actually, in certain respects, more outside religious studies than in, although that interest is coming within religious studies. Um, I have had one example of territorial pissing that, that's been significant. It's probably the one yeah. negative review of the book. It's by, by an analytic philosopher. Um, he's a guy, I, I won't name him here, but when I saw that he wrote the review, I thought, oh, I know we're going to have a fight because I'm arguing against the kind of ethics he's argued for in the past. And I thought, okay, well, at least we'll get to hash out those issues. But instead of actually arguing with me at what is our substantive forms of disagreement, he kind of like, tried to laugh the book out of court. He tried to sort of argue that its problems weren't really problems. And he said some really naive summaries of the book, like clear that he didn't really read it. He's like, he, you know, like, um, I say, you know, don't confuse existence with having certain sets of properties. And then he says, I confuse existence with having certain sets of properties. It's like a really weirdly embarrassing review that hmm. I think, uh, you know, embarrassing review because if you actually read the book, it's clear he didn't really. He picked bits out of it and invented people to argue with. That's been analytic philosopher. That's been the biggest example of territorial pissing that I've had. Uh, and that was a shame. But otherwise, the reviews so far have been really positive. And even more so, graduate students have been contacting me. Uh, I'm now on uh, three different graduate committees that of folks I wasn't on before. Uh, uh, more out of the U.S. than in the U.S., and more out of the discipline of religious studies than in the discipline of religious studies, but a little bit of both. I, I've been so overwhelmed, like bigger than uh, than any of my previous projects in terms of um, people with it. You know, yeah, I love a certain it. Kind of identification, yeah. Anyway, yeah. You know, um, there's something else in the book. One last thing I kind of am curious about is you reference multi-species flourishing in the chapter on hylosemiotics, and you know, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the natural world in general and how you see that as a sort of inspiration for this kind of work that you do. Yeah, totally. So we've been sort of talking about the book. It's got a lot of different pieces to it. And so and many pieces. Just, yeah. So, so many to go into and, and it is written in a way, and, and I didn't mean to do this on purpose, but I think people get the most out of it if they read it twice, because the pieces all fit together in ways that are not immediately obvious. And, but one of the big contributions of the book, one of the, in addition to the social ontology, the other biggest contribution probably um, is uh, a theory of meaning, how meaning works, a meaning of meaning. And this is something in a chapter called hylosemiotics. That word isn't meant to be jargony. It's something I came up with with uh, my brother, who's an animal studies guy. And hylosemiotics is materialized semiotics. And here's where it comes from. Um, there's a lot of theories of language that, um, particularly those that are inherited from um, people like Ferdinand de Saussure, this idea semiotics associated that we associate with structuralism or post-structuralism, that imagine that human beings are uniquely exiled into language, that uh, that there's a dyadic sign relation where a, uh, a sign uh, is about a signifier and a signified, in other words, a, a, like let's say a sound and a concept, but doesn't have anything to do with the world, uh, or and um, or that they haven't, or if you're an analytic philosopher, their notions that of language as being pure reference, uh, and I can talk about that a little bit later. But a lot of these uh, imagine that that humans are the only kind of communicative agents, and that that language is a uniquely human phenomena. But if a language evolved from some, had to evolve from somewhere, and I describe in the chapter, you know, a little encounter that I had with a snow monkey while doing fieldwork in Japan. <laughs> um, but it, it, it could have come, you know, I had had this inspiration where. Um, I started to think about uh, the, our relationship with the natural world in a different way. And my brother turned me toward a particular um, philosopher, a Baltic German biologist named Jakob von Uxkull, who um, had this notion of um, 
uh, animal, the, the way that animals are assigned consumers, basically, that a tick, he wrote, uh, Uxko write, writes about the tick, and he's like, the tick isn't just like a robot, it isn't just in the world, um, uh, just like going along a pre-programmed path, but actually it's sensing the world in terms of kinds of meaningful signs. And so expanding on this, elaborating it, answering some questions about it, I can't, one of the second biggest innovations of the book is a new theory of meaning that talks about how sentient beings, not just humans, uh, but also animals and uh, plants and other kinds of uh, uh, you know, creatures, um, produce meaning in the world. And, and to, to tell you what I mean by meaning, just to give you a very, very a snippet of an example, uh, first step is to think about meaning let me give you an example using ordinary English. If I look out the out my window right now, I and the the gray clouds might mean to me that it is going to rain. The clouds might mean to me that it is going to rain. I could be wrong about that meaning. Uh, I could see the gray clouds and and they could be I could be incorrectly interpreting them as causing rain. But but that kind of meaning, that interpretive process, which. Uh, uh, I argue closely co connects linguistic meaning with perception in general is part of also uh, similar to similar to the way that we um, uh, communicate or talk. So when you say, you know, would you like a sandwich or something like that? Uh, that's a, in a particular moment, I'm interpreting that and I make a distinction between voluntary and involuntary signs, uh, for instance. Uh, so uh, the the uh, and between sign production and sign consumption as well. It's hard for me to do this without a blackboard, but I'll, but I'll try. Mm. So uh, if, if, Greg, if you said to me, you know, I want to eat a sandwich, um, there's both, uh, one of the things that I could, you, there's something that you're trying to communicate. That's the voluntary sign content. But there's also things that you might be inadvertently trying communicating. Like uh, you might be uh, communicating to me that it's time for the interview to be over inadvertently, or you might be inadvertently uh, communicating to me if your voice was slurred, if you were drunk, you're not. But if you were, you might be inadvertently communicating that to me or, or something. So as a sign consumer, I'm capable of interpreting both intentionally sent signs and also unintentionally sent signs. So I mean, I, potentially, right? And so for that reason, for instance, a text like Moby Dick, for example, has in it, you, one thing you might try and reconstruct is what Herman Melville was thinking. That's fine. That I, I don't think we should taboo that, but it's, that's only the smallest, the barest surface of the kinds of things that you could interpret from that text. So I, I again, I don't want to say that, um, so this, this, so there's not one unique interpretation. It's also not true that there are an infinity uh, of interpretations. Not all interpretations, or I should put it a different way, not all interpretations are equally valid. You can be wrong in your interpretation of things. So you could be wrong. If you think that um, Herman Melville, uh, that Moby Dick was written as an instruction manual for a VCR, you, that would just be not, that would be an inaccurate <laughs> interpretation. Yeah. But but there's still a huge plethora of things that you might get from signs. And I want to argue that, that um, humans and that the way that language evolved, uh, and I think that there's also some good evidence in that I get from the primatological literature is that we first learn to be sign consumers in a particular way, just like other species of social animals. And But the one of the unique jumps in evolution is the increasing control we have over the production of certain kinds of uh, vocal signs. We have basically the ability to produce pitch and, uh, and um, communicate uh, linguistic syllables in a new way. And that's the biggest difference between us and chimpanzees, for instance, um, is not our capacity to interpret the world, but our ability to control our vocal apparatus, which, for example, in chimps, most of their communication, they don't have much as far as we can tell conscious control over their vocal apparatuses. So it's why they can learn some sign language, but not talk. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so that, but what that does is to take us back to multi-species flourishing, um, this whole theory of language, uh, a lot of folks from the, from Heidegger to, um, to, to many of the post-structuralists have imagined that we are imprisoned in language. 
and that the world is outside of our linguistic horizon. And what I want to argue is that language shapes thought, but it doesn't imprison us in any kind of category. And moreover, that we are amidst a world, a multi-species environment, which in which creatures are communicating and in which we are can either choose to be more or less receptive to their communications. And if we choose to be more receptive, then that leads us toward a kind of multi-species flourishing is part of what I want to argue in the book. I love it. Well, Jason, this is like, as you mentioned earlier, there are so many little parts in the book that we that we can't even get into. Um, there's so much here. And, you know, Rita Felsky blurbed the back of the book uh, and said that this demands to be read and argued over, which I'm so relieved to hear is actually happening. That makes me extraordinarily happy that this work that you've put so much of your life into is being read, is being argued over, mostly productively. I'm I'm glad to hear as well. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering if you um, can talk about like what's next, like as you're moving forward with this out into the world and in maybe into some other projects, but like what's next for this project, for future projects, like on your horizon? Uh, so for this project, I mean, like, uh, so concretely in, in how it's coming out in the world um, and, and being discussed and argued over, um, I've been delighted. There's There's been one journal roundtable in the book already, and a second one is coming out uh, with Religious Studies Review. There's a new one, and I've heard of another one in the pipeline. Um, I also did an interview with Moyo Okadiji, the guy who invented the term metamodernism. Yes. That's going to appear in print soon. Um, and uh, it's been really humbling to be the object of scholarship. People, Some people have, I mean, at least none of those have been published yet. And maybe when it comes out, I'll be even more, I'll be humiliated rather than humbled or we'll see. <laughs> but, 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 you know, people are, are writing about it. Uh, the, one of the biggest things I'm trying to do, I'm looking for, um, is more co-authors. Because I think that this has implications in a range of disciplines. And I'm just starting, I've reached a life phase where I want to help, help people out more, but also like, you know, one of the parts of the book is I, I realized the limitations of my own knowledge. This has implications for a range of disciplines. And one thing that people might do is find inspiration from it and use it to do their own work. But they might also be interested in co-authoring. And I'm starting to do that, some of that for the first time now. I'm looking for more co-authors. So if, if those of you who are listening, if some of you are graduate students or academics in a range of disciplines, especially the further from my home discipline, the better. And you'd be interested in co-authoring an article or, or organi co-organizing a conference or workshop, please get in touch with me, especially if you find that stuff useful and if I can help you as much as, you know, uh, I, 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 but I'm trying to, you know, you may also change my mind. I'm not dogmatic about my ideas too. Yeah. So, um, and then, so some of that is starting to happening a little bit. I've got some of my first co-authored stuff came out this last year um, and, and more stuff, hopefully in the pipeline. Um, in terms of concretely, in terms of the next project, though, um, I'm writing a long form book about power, but in the middle of writing that long form book about power, new theory of power, I had to take a step back and got, get really into Foucault, uh, as you must do, because he's the dominant figure in the theory of power at the moment. And so I'm finishing a short monograph. I write quickly. That's one of my advantages. I write and, and write and read fairly quickly. Um, and is uh, so I'm writing a book called The Genealogy of Genealogy, Colin Foucault, Nietzsche, History and Race, in which I'm basically exploring this thing that, you know, this is weird thing about academics, which often befuddles those non-academic colleagues of ours, which is the way that we use this word genealogy. Like, you know, you'll, you'll hit a book uh, with the title, you know, the, the genealogy of neoliberalism. And somebody who's not a scholar will be like, wait, are you telling me that everybody who's a neoliberal is related to each other or mm. what? Or, you know, what do you, what's the genealogy? So what I'm interested in is how this term came to take dominance in the Anglo-American Academy and I'm as a particular kind of historical critical method. And in 
so doing, I turn it on itself and I show that all along it was entangled in things like eugenics and race and different hierarchies of power. But I also try and, uh, and the end result is a destabilization or, or a working through of, um, uh, of genealogy. So it's like a snake devouring its tail and out the other side, I make a case for um, something that I also argue in some detail in the metamodernism book, which is an orientation toward the humanities and social sciences that turns genealogy on its head. So awesome. that's, uh, and, I, and I have two presses interested in that book already. I'm hoping to have it out it's a short book, hopefully, but it'll still be a little while because academics is really slow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where can people get in touch if they do want to follow along, you know, get in touch, maybe collaborate, but also just to pay attention to what it is that you're up to? Yeah, great. So the first place to look for me uh, is on my Williams College page. If you type in uh, uh, Jason I think if you even type in Jason Storm, you'll get it. But anyway, Jason Josephson Storm at Williams College. My full name, Jason Ananda Josephson Storm at Williams College. Uh, I have there links to my social uh, network sites. Uh, I'm I've been kind of pissed off at Twitter at the moment, so I'm uh, for for reasons that are probably obvious. Uh, yeah. So I haven't I've been sort of downgrading. I still have a Twitter thing, but I'm not looking at it. And I may delete it soon. I'm experimenting with some other platforms, but I haven't hit on the right alternative yet. Um, but at least if you uh, find me at my college page, it'll tell you, it'll give you my email address and it'll provide links to whatever social media I'm currently experimenting with. Um, and please, you know, I'm slow about email. I apologize to that in advance. I've, I've, I, uh, I'm not, I get so many emails on a daily basis. It's hard for me to keep up, but I will get back to people. Um, if, if please do email me or, or be in touch with me, uh, type Jason storm and look at Williams college and you'll find me. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Jason, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. The book is Metamodernism, The Future of Theory from the University of Chicago Press. And you can also get The Myth of Disenchantment from the University of Chicago Press as well. And hear another conversation that you and I had about that book in July of 2019. Thank you so much for joining me again. It has it's been a, a, yeah. a wonderful, wonderful day. And you it's just awesome to, to chat with you about your work. It's so visionary, wide-ranging, inspiring. It just makes my brain uh, have a workout, which I always appreciate. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>